All right, so take your Bible and turn to John 20. John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. John 20, verse 11. Mary was standing outside of the tomb, weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She beheld two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and have heard, uh, and he said these things to her. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to open your word this morning, and uh, we are so thankful uh, for its truth. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open our heart to receive uh, deeply the truth that you have for us, that it would be encouragement to us, that we would listen, uh, and that we would apply, uh, appropriate uh, your word into our heart and, and live according to all that you say, uh, because your word is true. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are in the 20th chapter again of the uh, book of John. We're looking at Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. Uh, nobody, uh, as you know in the text of Scripture, nobody actually physically saw uh, the resurrection of Christ. When Mary and the other women, uh, who are recorded in the other gospel accounts, show up at the tomb, uh, Jesus had already triumphed over the grave. And uh, that's exactly what he said he was going to do, right? He repeatedly said that over and over again. He was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, and then he was going to die. And, and the fact that Jesus has defeated death is evidenced by the stone being rolled away, the tomb is empty, uh, the grave clothes that he was encased in have been left behind, they're neatly placed where the body once laid. And then uh, the resurrection has been confirmed by the witnesses of the angels who came and declared to the women, again, who've come to the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint a corpse, uh, that Jesus is not there, that he triumphantly defeated death, he's risen from the grave, he's no longer present amongst the dead, but he's returned to the land of the living. And this morning we're going to have the wonderful opportunity of seeing the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus as he appears to this lady who's named Mary from a town called Magdala. Now Mary is one of a group of women who had uh, been there at Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and the time of the, the crucifixion, therefore she'd witnessed the Lord's agony. Uh, on three different occasions in the gospel accounts, Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19, it says that she was there. Uh, she was part of uh, this uh, assemblage of people, assemblage of women who were part of the witness of the crucifixion. And more than likely, she actually even saw the other events as well, the, the roar of the crowd that uh, were goaded on by the priests when they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him, the, the judgment of Pilate, the procession to Calvary, during which, time the, during which that time the physical weakness of Christ was so great because of his scourging, he fell under the, the weight of the cross and had to be relieved by a man named Simon of Cyrene in order that he might continue to march to his place of death. She probably saw the driving of the nails into the hands and the feet of the Lord. She heard the terrible cries, I thirst, and then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she must have witnessed the, the, the darkness, the earthquake, and then, of course, his death. And then perhaps even his burial. And Mary was there to see it all, an eyewitness. So the emotional strain on her, obviously, is intensely great because what man could even stand to watch such as things have, uh, that have unfolded against the, the sinless Lord Jesus Christ. But yet there's Mary. Uh, she's there at his death, and now she's the first one there at his tomb. And she's not there because she has great hope of a resurrection. Uh, she doesn't understand that at the moment. She's there for one reason. She's there because she loves the Lord Jesus. She loves him. And she doesn't want to leave him even in his death. And John's account really here of uh, the interaction with Mary Magdalene is just a touching, 
scene really full of, of all kinds of emotion. Mary's the first one there at the tomb in the morning. And after she runs back, right, she sees the stones already rolled away and she runs back and she tells Peter and John the stone's been rolled away from the entrance of the stone. The men come and look and then they go back to their own home. But Mary goes back, right? Mary goes to the gravesite and she won't leave. She doesn't know what's happened to her dear Jesus, but it's her love that makes her linger about the empty tomb. Uh, the tomb where Joseph and uh, Nicodemus had laid the body uh, three days earlier. And because of her love for Christ, she's going to have the great privilege of being the first one to see the Lord Jesus after he rises uh, from the dead. First one after, to see the Lord Jesus after he rose from the dead. The, the first one to hear his voice. Uh, the first one to hold a conversation with him. The first one to take hold of him and, and hug him. Uh, as she's so overwhelmed by joy because she has her beloved Jesus back alive from the dead. Now, we don't know a lot about Mary. I told you that a few weeks back. We don't know a lot about her. What we do know from her or about her really comes from the records of her appearance at the cross and her appearance at the empty tomb. We first encounter her in Mark 16 and in Luke 8, where it basically says the same thing, that Mary Magdalene was one of whom the Lord had cast out seven devils or seven demons. Uh, obviously, her lifestyle must not have been the best, uh, previously to meeting Christ, for uh, her sins must have been many, for her to be a place where seven devils or seven demons uh, felt comfortable to take up an indwelling presence in her life. Now, obviously, as she is a sinful woman, but I, I do not think, as I told you a few weeks ago, I don't think she's uh, the, the, the prostitute in, in Luke 7. I think that's a mistaken identity. She's not that lady. Uh, but I do think it's entirely significant that this kind of woman with such a past as hers, who had been in a particular way, again, uh, the object of Satan's possession, would be the one to whom the risen Lord would appear first. I think that's significant. He didn't appear to the religious leaders of Israel, obviously. And he didn't appear to the apostles first. He appears to this dear woman, who again has a tremendous amount of love for Christ, because she's been forgiven much by Christ. The Lord has forgiven her. The Lord has interceded in her life. The Lord has interfered. Isn't that what God does in all of our lives? Right? Before you come to a knowledge of the truth, you're just kind of doing your own thing. And then you come to a knowledge of the truth, you start to believe that Jesus really is who he says. He has interfered in a positive way in your life. And that's what Christ has done to her. He's come into her life. He's forgiven her much. He's radically transformed, saved her, changed her life from where she used to be and who she used to be. And I do think it's also significant that not only this kind of woman Christ appears to first, but Christ manifests himself to a woman. That's entirely significant in the culture. He revealed himself to this woman first after his uh, resurrection. It was to a woman at the well. You might remember back in John 4, the, a woman with a checkered past, the woman of, the, of Samaria there at the well, who had been married numerous times. She was living with a man now who is not her husband. And when she meets Jesus, she's an adulteress. She's a lady who has been with multiple marriages and multiple accounts of adultery, has been treated with scorn in her life. She's been uh, kicked out of her society. She's an outcast. But it was to this woman at the well that Jesus first reveals the fact that he is, a, he is the Messiah. And again, she wasn't even a Jew. She was in the, in the vernacular of the Jewish people. She was a half-breed, right? She was a half-breed. She was an outcast. She was a Samaritan, a woman from a false religious system that the Jews uh, hated, the Jews had great scorn for. And of course, at this time, women were not treated very well in the world. Uh, even in religious systems, even across the world in general, women are not treated well. But especially in religious systems around the world then and now, uh, women are, are not treated uh, very well. Just consider Islam. But Christianity is different. Christianity is different because God's no respecter of persons. And God has exalted women to the purest truest, purest sense. He has given them a significant place in the ministry and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also interesting when you look back at the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, that in the genealogy of Christ uh, that's recorded in Matthew chapter 1, we know that Christ comes from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, but amongst that line of men, there are listed four women. Tamar, who prostituted herself to seduce Judah in an ugly act of uh, immorality. You have Rahab, who's the Canaanite prostitute there in Jericho. 
You have Ruth, who was an idol worshiper, a Moabite, and the Moabites were people who were cursed by God. Then, of course, you have Bathsheba, uh, who was the wife of Uriah, who committed adultery with David. And then both of them uh, together uh, uh, bear uh, Solomon, who's in the Messianic line. And Bathsheba, again, an adulteress, and the one who's the cause of her husband's murder. And it's interesting that all four of these women find themselves in, in the line of the Messiah, and attention is drawn to them intentionally. And the reason that attention is drawn to them is God wants us to know at the beginning of the New Testament that Christ is bringing to the nations a message of grace. It's a message of grace. He's extending mercy to all men, all kinds of sinners, men and women. And at the same time, he's also elevating women because they're so oppressed throughout the world. And again, here's this woman who was once tormented by demons whom Christ will first reveal himself to after he defeats death. And again, that fact that Christ defeats death is no minor detail, so that's a pretty important message that she has the privilege of hearing first. As I've been telling you, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. The, the resurrection, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there's no Christianity. There's no hope. There's no help. Uh, no hope of defeating sin. No hope of defeating death and the devil. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are still all under judgment. So it's an important issue. But the fact is that Jesus Christ has defeated death, that means that forgiveness of sins is possible. The great good news that we're commissioned to go out and tell the world is that God is willing, the Holy God is willing to forgive your sin if you will repent and place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the great good news that the world needs to hear. Christ has accepted full the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Atonement has been made, full atonement. Therefore, there's nothing else to do. That's why all the false religions of the world, false religious systems are such an abomination of the sight of God because God has done it all through the person of Jesus Christ. The debt of sin has been paid in full. There's nothing else that needs to be done except to place your faith in Christ. Death has been conquered. Eternal life is uh, available again for those who repent, repent and place their faith in the Savior so that a man or a woman can stand before the courtroom of God as it were declared not guilty and positively righteous because of the intercession of the person of Jesus Christ. I, I've said uh, several times uh, in this series here recently in the last few weeks, it's impossible to receive salvation apart from that reality. It's impossible to receive salvation apart from believing that Jesus Christ literally is the Son of God come into the world and Jesus Christ literally physically defeated death. Paul in Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you what? Shall be saved. Right? From apart from that knowledge of truth, there, there's no salvation. So and as I've also told you, that it's much easier uh, to, to believe the truth of the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ from the dead than it is to come up with all kinds of ways that men and devils try to do to explain away the resurrection. Last time, we went through a number of the most popular foolish uh, ideas that men and demons uh, have put forward in, in the history of the church to try to explain the way the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think we went through 12 of them. Again, uh, only the devil or the fool, only a fool or the devil himself would, would try to deny the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're all still dead in our trespasses and sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're all still damned eternally all headed towards a literal place of eternal conscious torment, a place where there's no hope of ever escaping, that would be a place called hell. And we went through all the foolish uh, ideas that men have tried to put forward to explain away the resurrection. From And then I kind of went through and I explained all the fallacies, the problems with each one of them. If you weren't here last time, you might want to listen to that. It might be helpful to pick it up. We went through the unknown tomb theory, the wrong tomb theory, the legend theory, the uh, spiritual resurrection theory, hallucination theory, and a number of others. Probably one of the bigger ones is the swoon theory that says Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of faked it. He passed out and recovered in the, in the tomb, somehow escaped the tomb, beat the guards up, escaped, and then walked on his nail uh, pierced feet to, to Emmaus and tried to fake the, the resurrection. And then I said the, the big one that's the earliest lie, and it's really the lie that proves the resurrection, is the one the religious leaders put forward at the beginning when they bribed the Roman guards and just say, look, the, the disciples came and stole his body at night while we were sleeping. 
And again, I gave you all the fallacies for each one of those foolish ideas, all these false theories that try to explain away the empty tomb. And again, all the difficulties with believing a lie rather than just accepting the truth, as incredible as it might seem, Jesus Christ really defeated death. That's the truth. Jesus Christ really defeated death. And again, if the disciples stole the body of Christ, all the religious leaders would have to do, they're the ones that promote this life, the earliest life, the disciples really stole the body uh, of uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and all he wanted to do is to shut down that argument that Jesus Christ uh, raised, rose from the dead. Then all you got to do is do what? Produce the body. That's all the religious leaders had to do, produce the body, but they didn't. Nobody's ever said the tomb's occupied. Nobody has ever said, here's a box of bones that belong to Jesus. Nobody's ever done that. They can't do that. Because the reality is what? Jesus Christ has defeated death. That's reality. Jesus Christ defeated death, and he appeared to a number of people on a number of different uh, uh, occasions. There's 10 or 11, depending on how you count them, post-resurrection appearances. Uh, again, here first in our text in John 20, uh, you have him appearing to Mary Magdalene. You have him appearing to certain women in Matthew's version of it. Uh, there early in the morning on, on, on that early uh, resurrection morning on Sunday. You have him appearing to uh, uh, Simon Peter in Luke 24. You have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 28. You have the 10 apostles in the upper room in John 20, 19 without Thomas. And then you have him appearing just a few verses later in John 20, 26 and 29 uh, with Thomas. So with the 10, then with the 11. You have him with the seven uh, disciples fishing at the Sea of Tiberias, John 21. The 11 apostles and possibly other people in, in Matthew 26. Uh, he appears to 500 uh, brethren at once in 1 Corinthians 15, and then to James, again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And then the 11th appearance, if you're keeping count, the 11th to the 11 apostles, uh, again, uh, uh, maybe other people there at the uh, Mount of Olives at his ascension in Acts chapter 1. So uh, 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 before uh, 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 the ascension, it says that Christ stayed uh, in um, the world that he was with his disciples and he was teaching them 40 days uh, concerning the, the kingdom of God. So there's a massive amount of eyewitness testimony to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's easier to believe the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ than it is to believe all these foolish lies. Jesus also made some post-resurrection uh, uh, appearance after his ascension. You see that in Acts chapter 7 when he appeared to Stephen. You see him appearing to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, who becomes the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus there. And then, of course, in the book of the Revelation, you see him uh, appearing to John uh, in, in that uh, text uh, in Patmos. He's going to appear again the next time he comes. He's going to come when he comes to gather his blood-bought saints. He's going to descend from, uh, uh, from heaven with a shout. He's going to catch up all those to be with him forever. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. And then he's going to appear one final time uh, clothed with a um, robe dipped in blood uh, when he comes uh, again, Revelation chapter 19. He comes as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords to smite the nations, to take back this physical possession, take back the physical possession of this world that belongs to him. So all the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, there are many. Uh, they're all to believers, again, with the exception of Saul of Tarsus, who eventually becomes the uh, uh, Apostle Paul there on, on the road to Damascus and, and, and is converted. Now, obviously, we're very thankful for the resurrection, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, who has defeated sin and death because, because of Jesus Christ, because he has defeated sin and death. He's come out of the tomb. There is now, therefore, what? No condemnation. Amen. No condemnation. That's uh, such an encouragement. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that's an encouraging reality. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty in full. So here's Jesus appearing first to this lady, this woman Mary, and she loves the Lord much because, again, he has redeemed her life. And wherever the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, this incident testifies to the fact that God, through Christ, Christ will honor those who honor him, right? Christ will honor those who honor him. Now, this portion of Scripture, as J.C. Rowell points out, uh, will reveal to us how the fears and sorrows of believers are often quite needless, that we are uh, far too often anxious when there's no cause for it, how we mourn over, over things that we feel are absent when in reality they're within our grasp, even at our right hand. 
Ryle says this, he says, one-third of the things that we fear in life never happen at all, and two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. He says, let us pray for more faith and patience and allow more time for the full development of God's purposes. For if Mary had found the seal of the tomb unbroken and her master's body lying cold within, then she might well have wept. The very absence of the body which made her weep was a token of good and a cause for joy for herself and all mankind. Isn't that good? We need to get a right perspective on things. Because if Jesus Christ is in the tomb, if Jesus Christ is still dead, then it is sorrow for the world. But Jesus Christ has come out of the tomb, amen? And that's cause for great what? For great joy. That's cause for great joy. Here we go, verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So again, the emotional strain on this dear lady has to be uh, great uh, at this moment. Peter and John, they've come, and they've looked in the tomb, and they've gone back home. Uh, and, and, and again, she's just standing there. It's out of her love for Christ, her gratitude for Christ, uh, that she lingers uh, near the tomb. Uh, again, she has no idea what's happened to the body of Christ. Uh, she just can't tear away herself from the place where she last saw her master's body uh, been laid. And and so uh, no doubt she's terribly fatigued, you would think, with grief and concern. And she's got to be near the emotional end of her capacity uh, to deal with all of this. So she breaks down weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Verse 12. And she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Uh, it's interesting the angels did not reveal themselves uh, to either John or Peter uh, during their visit to the tomb. And it, then when you start thinking about angels and their interaction with men, you remember uh, uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 14 concerning angels, and, and the writer says that angels are what? They're ministering spirits, right? They're ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So apparently uh, Peter and John don't need that uh, ministry of the angel at the moment, but Mary's great grief props uh, their presence. And the presence of the angels would be, should have been a clue uh, to Mary that nothing's wrong, nothing's amiss, because God is present. Right? God is present. He's going to lift Mary's heart from the frightful or the fretful preoccupation she has over the loss of Jesus' body. And angels have uh, uh, figured prominently in the life of the Lord Jesus. God used them on several occasions uh, during his incarnation, during his time in the flesh here on the earth, and even before that. It, it was God who sent the angel to declare the uh, coming birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, and then the, 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 the one after Christ, the Messiah, would come as the angel appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. God used angels to herald the announcement of the birth of the Savior to the shepherds. He used angels to minister to our Lord during those 40 days of temptation there in the wilderness. And then angels came and ministered to him and strengthened him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So now God's going to send angels again to appear here on the day of the Lord's resurrection. They're the first ones to announce, they were the first ones to announce that the Savior had been born to the world, and they're the first ones 33 years later to announce the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated death. And as to the position of the angels, you look there in the text, it says two angels in white. I would think that means denoting purity, denoting holiness. Sitting one at the head and one at the feet, uh, where the body of Jesus had been lying. It's been noticed by many throughout the years that that's really a living picture. If you remember back in the Exodus 25, in that portion of Scripture, it's really a living picture of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. Right On the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels on either side. The uh, cherubim perched on top, uh, in the middle was the mercy seat, and those uh, cherubs had the responsibility of protecting the holiness of God. And the mercy seat, there in the middle, is the place where the offering was made, and that's the place where God said he would promise to meet men. So here at the tomb, they have two angels on, on either side of the slab where the body of Jesus had been laying. And Jesus, of course, is to men God's ultimate demonstration of mercy. The only place where justice and holiness and mercy meet and forgiveness of sin is found in the person of, of Jesus Christ. So these two angels have protected the Holy One. Uh, some commentators have uh, uh, said that the two angels, again, they have safely barred, uh, uh, safely um, uh, watched over and guarded the body of Christ so no one could come and steal the body. 
right? Stop and think of what one angel did back in the book of 2 Kings 19.35. One angel came and slays 185,000 of Sennacherib's army in one night, right? One angel could do that. Imagine what two angels could do. And you got two angels guarding uh, the body of Christ, right? Uh, Again, they had the great privilege of declaring to the world that he's not here. He's defeated death. These two powerful angelic uh, hosts or angelic beings that God has sent. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Again, the presence of the angels should have alerted Mary that things are going to be okay. But it's really interesting because the angels, the ones that caused the fear of the guards, they fall down like dead. But she doesn't even appear to react to the presence of these glorious beings. Maybe it's just the, the power of the grief that has overwhelmed her heart. Uh, she's experiencing because of her loss of her, her loved one, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, her eyes are filled with tears. She's only concerned about one thing. Where, where's the body uh, of her dear Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, let me tell you how great of a question that is. That is a tremendous question. Woman, why are you weeping? You go, what do you mean it's a tremendous question? Well, it's obvious why she's weeping. You know, she's sad. Yeah, I got that. She's sad. She's lost the body of Jesus. She doesn't know where he's at. But but the question is reflective. Meaning that the angels are trying to ask her a question so she'll stop, take a breath, and think for a moment. Search her own heart. Now, obviously, the, the weeping is a manifestation of her affection for Christ. I got that. But it also is a demonstration of her unbelief. And they're trying to get her to stop and consider that. They're trying to get her to stop and consider the fact that perhaps the empty tomb is not a moment for weeping, but the empty tomb is perhaps a moment for rejoicing. Again, J.C. Ryle, in the comment that I just referred to earlier, kind of paraphrasing it, he says, how often do we as Christians mourn over the absence of things that are in reality within our grasp? One-third of the things that we fear never happen at all, and two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Ryle says we need to pray more. We need to be more faithful. We need to be more patient. And we need to allow God to work out His plan and His purposes. We all affirm the Scripture that says, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose until... Things become difficult in our life. Now we say that, that God is uh, the sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. We say there's not one random molecule in the entire universe that God is not in charge over until life throws you a curveball, if you will. And then we enter into times of distress and trouble. When things don't go the way we think they should go, then we tend to doubt. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Again, Mary would have cause, great cause, for weeping if when she went to the tomb it was occupied. Because if she goes to the tomb and it's occupied, that means Jesus is still dead. There'd be no resurrection. No forgiveness of sin. We'd all still be under the penalty of our sin, which is eternal death. But Mary, like many of us, wept when there was no cause for weeping. She refused joy when God brought joy into her presence. False fear, false sorrow, false anxiety is part of our life when we don't believe God. When we don't trust what God says. Why are you weeping? Again, she's still looking for a dead body, not a risen Savior. She most certainly must have heard the Lord at some time in her association with him because he said it more than once. Most certainly she must have heard him say that he would defeat death. And he would rise from the grave on the third day. But again, Mary's like many of us. We tend to hear the truth, but we don't listen to it. 
We hear the words, but we don't listen. Because we're very slow to give up on our long-standing prejudices of what we think or how we think things should be or how we think things are. And when we receive truth that contradicts our preconceived thoughts and ideas, we struggle. Woman, why are you weeping? Arthur Pink says, We have no reason for supposing the angels were ignorant of the occasion of Mary's lament. Therefore, we understand their words. Here is a gentle inquiry made for the purpose of stirring her mind. Why weepest thou? Have you any just cause for those tears? Search your heart. Is not the fact that Christ is not here a ground for rejoicing? He says the words the angels use here are precisely the same language the Savior is going to use in verse 15, thereby imitating uh, that uh, the words are intimating that the words are ever spoken by the command of God. No doubt our unbelief, our fears, our repining, which just means our, uh, our uh, fretting, our lack of obedience and zeal afford much ground of surprise to these unfallen beings. Angels must look at us, scratch their head and go, what in the world's wrong with these people? Loose paraphrase, but that's pretty close. Why, why don't they listen? Why don't they believe? Verse 13 again, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now the answer is almost exactly the same as she said to Peter and John when she ran back after she saw the tomb uh, empty. In both cases, she speaks indefinitely of they, whoever they is. She doesn't indicate who she means. Women, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away. Listen, my Lord, my Lord. Not just the Lord, my Lord. It's an expression of the depth of her affection for Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. Right? The one who loved me and then gave himself for me, as Paul says in Galatians 2 and 20. Women, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14. When she said this, she turned around and, and beheld Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Now, the reason that Mary turned away from the angels and turned around, we're not told. Many of the older commentators believe that there is a specific reason because that little phrase, she turned around, is in the emphatic. And, and many reasons are given to why perhaps she turned around at this moment. But more than likely, these angels that were speaking to Mary did not, uh, they noticed when the Lord appeared, right? And more than likely, Mary, she's talking to these angels, more than likely she notices there's a change in their countenance, a change in their, in their manner. So she notices they're looking at something, so she turns around to see what in the world has caught their attention. She turns around. So some of the early church commentators suggest that when the Christ suddenly appears behind her, the angels were in such, struck with such awe as they beheld their ruler immediately, their countenances changed and that draws Mary's attention to, again to look behind her. She turned around and beheld standing there, beheld Jesus standing there, and did not know it was Jesus. Now, many reasons are given why perhaps uh, this is so that Mary didn't know it was Jesus. Some suggest, well, Mary is weeping so bitterly that, uh, or you know, so greatly, such bitter lament that she just can't see physically. Others have said, well, you know, it's kind of dark. Maybe it's early in the morning there. It's dusk, so she just can't see. It's too dim outside. But none of those possibilities are probably the best answer because it's interesting that Mary's not going to be the only follower of Christ who's not going to recognize him on the day of resurrection. Luke says that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so that's possible. This is true of Mary Magdalene at the moment. Others have suggested it's very possible that the condition of our Lord's risen body was different from his body before the resurrection or before the crucifixion. It's his literal body after the crucifixion and resurrection, but it's different. It's his same body, similar but different. And you kind of get that idea, I think, continuing, uh, looking at our bodies. And uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 42, he says, 
so is the resurrection of the dead, sown in a perishable body, it's raised in an imperishable body, sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, sown in weakness, it's raised in power, sown in a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So um, our bodies, his body, but different, right? It's because he's defeated death. Another reason that should be put forth is that uh, why Mary didn't recognize Jesus immediately. Again, she's not expecting what? The resurrection. She's not expecting the resurrection. He's died. Jesus has died. She saw him dying. She's seen him being buried. She's witnessed it with her own eyes. And that's in her mind. In her mind, by her own eyes, the whole thing's over. She doesn't recognize him because she's looking for a dead man, not a risen Savior. One writer says this concerning Mary's failure to recognize it was Jesus. He says Mary needed to realize that she was looking in the wrong place. Seeing Jesus only after she had turned around, likewise she had been looking for a dead Jesus, uh, the dead Jesus of the past, rather than the living Jesus who is now before her in the garden. She turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus, verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, woman, are, why, it's the same question. Why are you weeping? It's the same question the angels had asked her. Why are you weeping? Are you sure it's the right thing to weep over the empty grave? Or should this be a time of rejoicing? Now, the second question that the Lord asks, I think, is even more searching than the first. Whom are you seeking? And I think, in essence, the question is, why are you looking for a dead person? Because, again, Jesus had repeatedly promised that he was going to defeat death. And as faithful and as loving as she was, Mary was towards Christ, she, too, had forgotten the truth or not believed the truth and not listened carefully enough to the truth that Jesus said, he would defeat death and rise from the dead. So again, all the questions are reflective. They're, they're meant to cause her to stop and think. Consider what she had heard and then believe what she had heard. And really the questions that Christ asks are really an act of compassion towards her. Now, the, the words are not aimed at the grief Mary is pouring out because of her love for Christ, but again, they're more directed towards the unbelief that is operating within her grief. The, the, the questions are directed towards the unbelief that is operating within the grief that she is expressing. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now again, the Lord's not asking for information for him on a personal level. He's asking the question for her, for her benefit. The grief, the sorrow, being overwhelmed with the emotion at the moment. Is not considering what God said to be true. And I think because we tend to be just like Mary, that causes us all problems at various times. How many people struggle with the issue of anxiety? All kinds of anxieties that are unnecessary in this life. And we've spoken about this numerous times. Paul's admonition to the Philippians, Philippians 4 6, be anxious for, next word, I'm sorry? Hey, do you know what nothing means in the Greek? Right? We chuckle because we realize how ridiculous it is in our own mind the way we deal with certain issues in life. Well, I believe the Bible to be true. I'd be anxious for everything. No, it says be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then here's the promise, verse 7, Philippians 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I would contend we spend far too much time worrying about things we have no control over. We spend far too much time being anxious when there's no cause for anxiety. And we're called biblically to be anxious for nothing. We spend too much time fretting and worrying and in fear about things that never happen instead of praying more, 
instead of trusting more, instead of believing more. We spend time in vain crying, in tears over those things that if we just exercised more faith, more patience in God, looked at Him and trusted Him and His character and His goodness of His purposes, we could actually go to Romans 8.28 and say we know that God causes all things to work together for good with those who love God and called according to His purpose. And again, as I've told you numerous times, the most important part of that whole verses and we know do we really know that do we know it experimentally right in our own life do we know that to be true only if you believe what god says to be true only if you trust what god says to be true only if you trust his nature and character either god is the sovereign or the whole thing is chaos uh, across the world perhaps god in his sovereignty uh, is allowing the conflict that's going on immediately or at, at the moment in Israel because he has a higher purpose to bring men and women's attention to the person of Jesus Christ. Just maybe. Maybe just all the chaos in the world is part of that. Well, it's not just maybe. I know that's for reality because I read the Bible and I know that God has an eternal plan that he's carrying out in time. It's for the exaltation of his son. And the only hope of the nations is the person of Jesus Christ. The only answer to mankind's problem is the gospel. Repent and place your faith in him. Trust him, not your circumstances. Mary can't evaluate her circumstances any better than we can. She sees the tomb open and she runs to all these different conclusions. Her mind's all over the place when she should just take a breath and let God be God. And we do the same thing. Mary, why are you weeping? The overwhelming reality in the story, the overwhelming reality that we tend to forget is the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now here at the tomb, the Lord's presence is going to transform Mary's grief into great joy because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And our faith is increased and we gain joy and we gain peace in our heart when we realize that the, vic- the victory that Christ actually has won over sin, over death, over the grave. Because Jesus Christ has defeated death. When death comes into our own personal world, we can look at it differently than the unbeliever who have no hope, who have no help. We know that death is an enemy. Jesus Christ has defeated the last enemy. He's gone into the tomb and he's come out and he's promised for all who believe they will likewise follow him in victory. The resurrection changes everything. No matter how difficult life may be, Christ's victory over sin and death and evil is literally of cosmic proportions. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes everything here is the one person who has ultimate power ultimate authority the one who is the sovereign over the nations let not your heart be fearful trust in him look to him verse 15 again jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I mean, again, she's overwhelmed with sorrow. She has only one thought on her mind. She wants to recover the body of Jesus. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he is, and I will take him away. Well, as much as she may have desired to do that, I don't doubt her sincerity, but the reality is it's impossible because there's no way that Mary is carrying a body of a full-grown man, especially one who's been encased with this gooey, uh, fragrant substance where an additional 75 to 100 pounds of weight has been added to his body there in the grave cloths. So she's speaking with the emotion of her heart, not the reality of her abilities. Because she loved him. And because she loves him so much, she's offering to do for him uh, the impossible, which she cannot do. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned to him and in the Hebrew said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Again, thinking him to be the gardener, she has no real interest in him and what he's saying or anything that he might want to say. But with that one single word, the Lord compassionately and graciously awakens her from her stupor. He opens her eyes to the reality of who's standing before her. Mary! I mean, the boundless compassion of Christ on display uh, that he has for Mary and for all of his people. I mean, this dear lady had been crying for three days and three nights. Uh, she, she's in utter anguish, the heartache uh, that she's experienced, again, because she doesn't know what's happened to the dead body of the, of the Lord. And she's seeking the Lord. And guess what? He's closer than she even imagines. There's a great reality of truth for all of us. Psalm 34, verse 18 said, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know what that means in the Hebrew? Through a, a curveball at you. It wasn't the Greek. You know what's in the Hebrew? It means the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Because God knows how to speak and He doesn't stutter. Saves those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you. Next word. Always. Even to the end of the age. And all of us have to choose either to believe the Word of God or struggle. Those are the choices. We either believe the Word of God or we struggle. Because Christ is near to His people. Even when we as His people are not aware of Him. The fact is, He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. So instead of praying, Lord, be with us, we ought to pray, Lord, we thank You for Your continual presence. Because that gives me encouragement and hope in the midst of this difficulty that I'm dealing with. Mary mistakenly thinks she's talking with the gardener, but then Jesus opens her eyes by calling her name. Right? He calls her name, and that's what God does for all of us. He draws his people to himself personally by name. He is the good shepherd, right? He calls his sheep, and his sheep recognize his voice. Uh, John, 20, or John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So Christ in his great grace manifests himself to those who seek him. And again, expecting to see a dead body, she turns around and beholds the living Savior because Jesus Christ is able to do more than we ask or think. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned around and said to him in the Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. If you have the authorized version, it says uh, uh, Rabboni, which says, means master, or is it the same master? It really is a title of great respect. It's a title of reverence. Apparently it's a title that Mary must have used uh, previously in her following of the, of the Lord Jesus, and it's the kind of term that, that we use. Right? That's who Jesus is. He's our teacher. He's our master. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned around and, and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher or master. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and tell them that I ascend to my father and your father my God and your God so again Mary first when she first saw Jesus her eyes were blinded again by tears and unbelief uh, she thinks she's talking to the gardener Mary uh, then Jesus speaks her name and, and then she hears the voice of her beloved Lord and, and she runs towards him to embrace him probably the very similar kind of experience the other woman when they first see the Lord as it says in Matthew 28 verse 19 they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him what does it mean here specifically in the context here? Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Well, there's two liberal ideas that you can throw out immediately. Uh, some liberal commentators come and say, well, uh, Jesus' warning here proves that he was not resurrected in a real physical body. It's a spiritual body. But you can throw that one out because just a few uh, moments later, a few hours later, Jesus tells Thomas to do what? Put your finger here in my hands and my side, right? So I'm a real body. And then he said, you got anything to eat, right? So spirits don't have real bodies and spirits don't sit down and have lunch with you. Uh, others have suggested, uh, again, that Jesus needed to immediately ascend to heaven and present an atonement before the throne of the Father. But the Bible says, the Bible says that's not accurate. Uh, since Jesus didn't ascend until after 40 days, again, Acts chapter 1, that he spends with his uh, 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 disciples teaching them things about the kingdom of God. So if there was an ascension on the same day that there was a resurrection, it would seem, to, it would seem difficult that the scripture would be silent about that, that great event. So you can throw that one out also. 
Two other ways that I think are helpful, uh, both of them in understanding the warning, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Uh, the first would be this, that Jesus is informing her that his ascension has not yet taken place. It's going to be later. So listen, you don't have to hold on to me so tight. You're not going to lose me anytime soon. I think that's what he's saying. I mean, again, Mary's holding on to Jesus for dear life, as it were. That's the idea behind the word clinging. The word means fasten, hold on to, stop clinging to me. For I've not yet ascended to the Father. I mean, again, the Lord many times had said that he was going to go back to the Father. John 13, the night of the Passover meal, when he's betrayed. That Thursday night, John says, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father. John 14, he said the same thing in the upper room discourse. I'm going to the Father. John 17, the high priestly prayer, he said, I'm coming to you, Father. Even before the events of the cross, he was looking past the cross because he knew that he was going to the Father. That, that's part of the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure physically the events of the cross. He knew that he was going to the Father. The cross is going to take him to the Father. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Again, the ascension is not going to be for 40 days. So there's going to be plenty of time for seeing, plenty of time for touching and holding and hearing and listening and conferring with the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Mary should not waste any more precious time on this great eventful resurrection morning by embracing Christ but she should go as fast as she can, depart from him, go to the disciples and tell them the reality that Jesus Christ has defeated death. That's what's going on. And I think another, in addition to that, I think Jesus is also pointing out that because of his death and resurrection, the, the relationship has been changed forever between Mary and the other disciples. Again, consider the fact that she lost, for a few days, she lost the physical nearness of Jesus. And, and can you imagine the excitement she has on that morning where she sees him again uh, alive from the dead? But because of the resurrection, she would not have to hold on to him like she did in her past former relationship with him. He's not stifling her desire for relationship he's just pointing out the fact you know because of the res did i say that the resurrection changes everything have i said that before the resurrection changes everything and because of the resurrection there's going to be a new relationship between christ and his belief and his followers because when he does ascend he's going to send whom the holy spirit it's the promise he made back in john chapter 14 Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you, next word, forever. John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, you remember at the top of chapter 14, Jesus said, look, it's better that I go away. I know you all like me here, but it's better for you that I, that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to come back. I'm going to send the, whole, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of Christ is going to be with his followers forever. And dwelling them forever. Therefore, the followers of Christ, because they have the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, right? Christ living within them, they always have Christ. They always have Christ. They always have Christ. They always have Christ's peace. Christ's power, Christ's presence. One writer says this. He says the desire for real communion of life would soon be met in a new and far higher way than was possible under the conditions of the local earthly nearness. He says Christians today living on the other side of Christ's ascension and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost enjoy a higher form of communion with Jesus even than the disciples who knew him in the flesh. We have a spiritual communion with the living Savior through the Spirit who indwells us. And Paul expresses it like this, Christ lives in me, Galatians 2 and 20. Now just stop and think about that before I go on. What do you think Paul meant when he said, Christ lives in me? You want, you want a few moments to think about it? Okay? He probably meant, he probably meant 
Christ lives in me. Took me a long time to get to that one. But we go, oh, my life, I don't know. I can't deal with this thing or that thing. I think I should run around the block and just be worried about everything. Christ in me. The hope of what? Glory. His presence, his peace, his power. The writer goes on and says this, wearied or discouraged Christians will sometimes lament that Christ seems far distant, but he is not. Having ascended into glory, Jesus is now intimately close to each of the great multitude of his disciples on the earth. He goes on and says, now Jesus lives in us by the Holy Spirit's inward ministry through God's living word. Everything's changed because of the resurrection. And not only do we have a new relationship with Jesus because he defeated death, Jesus is going to send Mary to deliver that declaration of the fact that there's a new relationship with him because he defeated death, with his disciples. And instead of clinging on to her, he commissions her to go. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my to the Father, here it is, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's significant. Because it's the first time in the New Testament that the disciples who had previously been referred to as either slaves or friends, it's the first time that he calls them brethren. That's because of Christ's work on the cross, the work of redemption. And because of that work on the cross, the work of redemption, there's a new relationship that has been made available to those who believe upon Christ because he's defeated death. Again, the resurrection changes everything. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 5, 1, or 1 verse 5, and then Romans 8, 14 and 15 say that God has adopted us as sons because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We who believe in him, right, as it says in, in Galatians 3.26, as a result of the resurrection, uh, Hebrews 2, 12, uh, 2, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's become, because of the resurrection, Romans 8.28, the firstborn among many brethren. Resurrection changes everything. There's a complete change of relationship. Listen, in Judaism... Uh, there was no kind of an idea that, that an individual could become a quote-unquote son of God. There was no uh, indication in Judaism, no kind of idea of understanding that we be, could become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4. Those two things would have been considered blasphemous. To say that you're the, the, the brother or the sister of deity would have been blasphemous. To say that you're a partaker of the divine nature would have been blasphemous. But because of Jesus Christ, who's defeated death, it's now what? True. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and defeating death. We've been placed again through his death, burial, and resurrection into a new relationship with God. No longer is he our condemner because there's now what? Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's now our what? Father. Abba. And now we're Christ's brothers. And he's not ashamed to call us brother. I mean, the, great, the great glorious news of the gospel is not just the, the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, as wonderful as that is, where God accepts guilty sinners uh, in his sight by acquitting them by the virtue of his son, uh, the, the Redeemer, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who justifies us. We're justified because Jesus has stood in our place and paid our penalty. He's bore our sins, and God's imputed to him our sins and to Christ as God has imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to us by grace alone, through faith alone, we're saved again according to God's mercy. That's tremendous. But, but salvation goes way beyond that. It goes to the doctrine of adoption. God sends his son. He cleanses us of all of our sin through the blood of Christ. He brings us to the position of being justified in the courtroom of God. But then he brings it a step closer, more personally. He brings this intimately into his own family. That's tremendous truth.
adoption, the tremendous doctrinal truth, tremendous God, tremendous Savior. Our relationship with God has been changed completely. We've been brought near through the blood of Christ. Counted again, completely justified because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now we're part of his family. The resurrection changes everything. Go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my father and your father, my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and he had said these things to her. But sadly, if you look over at Luke 24, verse 11, disciples don't believe it. Luke 24, 11. These words appear to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. What a sad commentary. The Lord appeared to Mary Magdalene. The men don't believe it, but what's coming next? The Lord's going to appear to them. The Lord's going to appear to them. Prove her words true. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for your word. What great, encouraging hope for us, for the nations. The reality, the fact, the resurrection changes everything. Your word is true in absolutely everything it declares. Help us to not walk by sight, but to walk by faith, to believe every word that comes from your mouth. And your word is so rich, so encouraging, so deep. Our hearts are overwhelmed. We're overflowing with gratitude towards you and all that has been granted to us in the scripture. Uh, the book is a, uh, the Bible is a book without parallel for which we're thankful. And so thankful that you brought us into your family. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're our Father in charge of everything. And we look to you and hope in you and you alone. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.